In the early morning hours of May 5th, 1960, phones began ringing on the bedside tables of some of the most important men in the government of the United States. The principals of the National Security Council were being summoned. The 443rd meeting of the National Security Council had been scheduled to take place in Washington later in the morning, but the 5th of May 1960 was a special kind of day, involving special plans, and U.S. President Dwight Eisenhower had an idea. You see, the president had already evacuated from the Capitol by helicopter in the pre-dawn hours to the newest, most secure conference room in the newest, most secure cave in the Federal Relocation Arc. It's unclear how long he'd harbored the idea or if he'd conceived it that morning as he toured the new subsurface facility called High Point. And if you don't know it by that name, then I'll bet you've heard of a place called Mount Weather. It's located about 50 miles or 80 kilometers from Washington, D.C., as the helicopter flies, and had been in full operation for less than a year. The new command center would be the perfect place to host the day's meeting. Because that day, Thursday, the 5th of May, was the first day of Operation Alert 1960, a nationwide coordinated civil defense exercise that tested the ability of the federal, state, and local governments of the United States to simulate a nuclear war. That morning, President Eisenhower saw the opportunity to run his own exercise, and so the calls went out. And this surprise of a nuclear war began. The chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission and the Secretary of the Treasury were the first casualties. John McCone, the AEC chairman, had a conflicting engagement and missed the helicopter. Treasury Secretary Robert Anderson was ill. They were both left in Washington, never to be seen or heard from again. Secretary of Defense Thomas Gates and Acting Secretary of State C. Douglas Dillon had been so surprised and generally confounded by the suddenness of the call that neither was able to summon official transport from the federal motor pool. Sensing their own mortality and doom in the face of Soviet bombs, they took their own cars to the evacuation point. The director of the CIA, Alan Dulles, was somehow able to snag a car and driver from the motor pool, though the record of the morning shows that the vehicle, quote, broke down in the first hundred yards. Secretary of Defense Gates, now in his own car, you will recall, came to within sight of the evacuation helicopters. But in his haste to survive the exercise, he had left his house without his official ID. The Marines guarding the fence refused to let him through. Let me just say once more, Thomas Gates, Secretary of Defense. In the final history of those who never made it to safety that day, there is a single line in the memorandum of the National Security Council meeting from the uncertain safety of the High Point bunker with Russian bombers inbound, Air Force General Nathan Farragut Twining, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, had been somehow, quote, left in Washington.
oh, if only this were fiction. But it isn't. This is the Cold War Vault. This was not Dr. Strangelove, or even a piece of fiction informed by historical events, which I have offered before, for instance in the series on the Cuban Missile Crisis. No, these incidents, as absurd as they seem, were reported to the convened NSC meeting, and to the president himself as they sat in the president's briefing room in Mount Weather by National Security Advisor Gordon Gray. When things were said and done, Eisenhower declared the surprise evacuation a valuable exercise, and Gordon Gray even termed it a success. What his definition of success was is not recorded in the minutes, though it seems to imply that a relatively short-fused evacuation of essential personnel from Washington was possible, or at least most of those essential personnel. Even in 1960, there were still glimmers of hope that a useful evacuation of personnel and populace could still take place. Not necessarily among the populace, large segments of which participated in massive protests and resistance to the drills, mostly in New York, but throughout the country as well. And neither among the personnel the deputy director of the Federal Civil Defense Administration, in charge of the Operation Alert drills, called them not drills, but a show. He was fired. And Eisenhower himself was inconsistent in his visible support of the exercises, ranging from confident national figurehead in time of simulated national crisis to taking the weekend of the exercise off to play golf. His successor, John Kennedy, refused to take part in the 1961 Operation Alert, which he deemed an absurd display, and the program was canceled. Whether or not the relocation of the NSC that morning in 1960 was entirely successful, the events of that day represent an unrehearsed simulation of the evacuation that would have to be carried out on a grander scale. High on the list of greater goods in the handbook of the U.S. federal government was, and remains, its own survival. This anecdote from Operation Alert 1960 casts some doubt on the success of that instinct towards self-preservation. Nevertheless, they tried, and tried, and tried. Governments have always planned to save themselves. Anytime war has pressed at the edges of some national capital, the kings, emperors, and their councils make the choice to stay or go. Many have fallen, and some have lived to fight another day. The United States, during its revolutionary and immediate post-revolutionary period, had eight separate capitals as its government was chased around the country before settling in Washington, D.C., but it was really in that last capital, much later, in 1950, 
that the first modern plans for preserving a government were hatched. Modern in that they were planned, rehearsed, and required infrastructure beyond heading for the hills and regrouping. And the reason was a fundamentally new weapon that would, in just a very few short years, become an existential threat, not just to the federal government, but to the survival of the United States itself. While the Atomic Age began in 1945, very little thought was put into survivability in the nuclear age until August 1949, when the Soviet Union detonated its first atomic bomb, years ahead of intelligence predictions and surprising everyone, except probably the spies that had passed the Los Alamos secrets to the Soviets. California Representative Chet Holyfield wasted no time. He was the chair of the Joint Committee on Atomic Energy and made his mark in Congress advocating for various aspects of those issues. He was among the first to see the data on the Bikini Atoll tests in 1946 and later called for a national fallout shelter program. But in February 1950, six months after the first Soviet bomb, Chet Holyfield saw the real threat he called for an alternate seat of government based on his accumulated knowledge from the Joint Committee. And he was the first to use the term continuity of government in its Cold War context. He said, The continuity of government functions in a period of national emergency created by atomic or hydrogen bomb disaster must be guaranteed. Such guarantee does not exist at the present time. As you might imagine, as the subjects of these life-saving efforts, members of the federal government were unusually bipartisan in their support. By October of 1951, the big plan was unveiled. First aid and firefighting supplies were distributed to federal buildings. Washington, D.C. area shelters, previously designed during World War II, were hardened, and stockpiles of blood plasma were expanded. Speaker of the House Sam Rayburn was excited to announce the development of the first relocation facility, which would be for Congress, of course. The location was a secret at the time, though it would come to light later that it was an extensive and well-appointed bunker under the Greenbrier Resort in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia. In 1951, the military, also convinced of its own necessity in a nuclear war, began construction on an underground pentagon. The site would come to be known as Raven Rock, or Site R. As the government hurried to save itself, the population of the U.S. had a mixed view of the situation. In November 1952, the U.S. detonated the world's first thermonuclear bomb with Ivy Mike, and so the level of destruction, and survivability, I should say, that had been demonstrated in Hiroshima and Nagasaki just seven years earlier, now seemed very, very far in the rear-view mirror. 
Some thought that survivability was impossible. Some thought that his civil defense strategy was more necessary than ever. In the White House and the Pentagon, the outlook was already grim enough that had it been known, most of the populace likely would have quit their jobs and taken to the hills. For the complete story on that, listen to the Vault's series on the Net Evaluation Subcommittee, episodes 3, 4, 6, and 8. Whether anything could be done, something needed to be seen to be done. Large-scale citywide atomic air raid drills were held across the country, starting in 1951, but by 1954, the Federal Civil Defense Administration, in charge of coordinating the drills, had something bigger in mind. This began a series of national exercises called Operation Alert. In the next episode in this series, we'll look at the civilian side of Operation Alert and all that it meant for the psychology of the populace in the Cold War, at least in North America. The media called the ordeals the most realistic air raid defense tests of the atomic age. But what was significant about the Operation Alerts, or Operations Alert, rather, was that they were fully integrated, top-down simulations of nuclear war. From the U.S. president to the people in the New York subway, everyone was supposed to play along. And to be a good role model, Eisenhower was sure to be seen taking the drill seriously. With the newsreel cameras carefully arranged, the president was rushed from the Oval Office by his appointment secretary and the head of the Secret Service, outside and onto the Presidential Emergency Operations Center under the East Wing of the White House. Thousands of other federal employees followed along in building evacuations, including the whole of the Pentagon. Yes, I said evacuations right into the street like a fire drill. So, no, I have no idea either. A little more effort and pageantry went into Operation Alert 1955. Or I should say, a lot more. Eisenhower, the entire cabinet, and officials from 30 federal agencies were evacuated from the Capitol to an emergency tent city relocation camp for three days, probably on, not inside of, Mount Weather. Each government agency occupied its own large military-style tent, identified by stenciled wooden placards on posts by the entrances. Eisenhower presided over the mock nuclear war, directing the counterattack and, at one point, issuing a declaration of martial law. This didn't go over well with Congress, who had been left behind, incidentally. Two months after this exercise, Eisenhower received a briefing on the latest study on the total capabilities of the Soviet Union. If before he'd had a hint that things were taking a turn for the unsurvivable, that 1955 briefing was the end of any confidence he still had in continuity of government and civil defense for the populace in the face of the threat to come. The quickly advancing intercontinental ballistic missile program was the major threat on the horizon. Eisenhower said, 
If the Russians can fire a thousand a day at us, and we can fire a thousand a day at them, then I personally would want to take off for the Argentine. So much for continuity of government. So, he also must have been thinking, a tent city on top of Mount Weather might not do us very much good at all. And the facts of that report likely stuck with him into 1956. He stayed in Washington as the top military officials were evacuated in helicopters from the Pentagon lawn, and 10,000 federal workers from 30 agencies fled the city to 65 relocation centers in the Federal Arc. A quick word on that. Just five years before, the most the federal government could hope for was to go to their respective basements and pray. In the years that had followed, an elaborate system of agency survival had emerged. The federal relocation arc included, and still includes, the sites you know and love, like Raven Rock and Mount Weather. But it also includes fallout shelters in various federal facilities scattered in the deep suburbs and countryside. There is both a lot and a little that can be said about the arc. A lot, if you collected every scrap on it, mostly unsupported, from conspiracy websites from 1997. And a little, if you follow the verifiable information that has been declassified. Very little has been declassified, though, because the ARC continues to be used, even now, or maybe especially now, in 2020. Back to Operation Alert 1956, the exercise was planned to be the most extensive up to that time, with the federal evacuees in hiding for a week. But Eisenhower seemed less interested than before. The president's schedule was shifted, and the White House voiced concern over a slightly extended legislative session. And so any participation was shortened to what the New York Times termed a long weekend. 1957 brought new urgency to the exercise. At least, new urgency to the appearance of the president taking part. I believe that there is an argument to be made that Eisenhower's alternating enthusiasm for and then resistance to the Operation Alert circuses was influenced by the shifting sands of the annual National Security Council assessments and Pentagon analysis of the realities and impending realities of the Soviet threat. In late 1956, after he had all but sat out the exercises, intelligence bombarded him with bad news. A report titled Panel on the Human Effects of Nuclear Weapons Development had been commissioned by the National Security Council in order to investigate an increasing concern that the fear of nuclear destruction on the part of the American people had grown so acute that it was having a negative impact on public support for administration policy. Essentially, the populace needed to get with the nuclear program. The report assumed 50 million U.S. casualties from 90 cities, with 30 to 35 million people killed. 
The panelists agreed that with deaths like those, the United States would face what it termed national disintegration. The problem was that people just didn't know what to do, how to shelter, what to be afraid of, and more importantly, where to put their trust after a nuclear war. In the current state of affairs, the panel described the psychological landscape after an attack as one in which, quote, the people would be psychologically overwhelmed by the extent of damage and casualties. But that was nothing compared to the National Security Council report that came along with it. The population had a knowledge problem, sure. If they didn't have enough sense to follow civil defense pamphlets, what could they expect? But the NSC's report determined that a Soviet surprise attack would find, quote, the national government virtually wiped out. Now something would have to be done. So, to get everyone back on board with the civil defense program, the public spectacle of government evacuation was stepped up for Operation Alert 1957. Eisenhower, White House staff, and reporters were evacuated from the White House lawn in front of other, presumably envious reporters, and newsreel cameras. The use of a presidential helicopter for evacuation brought a certain level of media attention. It offered a new, speedy way to save the government, and therefore the country itself in the face of the Soviets. This would give the population hope, and something to live for. So the thinking went. In fact, Eisenhower became the first president to fly in a helicopter while in office. So, publicity mission accomplished. In the face of nuclear annihilation, the federal government of the United States continued on its committed mission to save itself. While the Presidential Succession Act of 1947 had revised the line of succession, it didn't do much to proactively discourage the actual dying of members of the line. So in 1957, the Federal Civil Defense Administration made Continuity of Government the title for one of its top programs. The plan had four parts. First, establish a line of succession. Check. Second, create a system for preserving records in case of, well, nuclear war. No dodging the IRS even in the apocalypse. Third, develop emergency relocation facilities for everyone in the line of succession and a functional staff for their departments. And four, utilize all government personnel, facilities, and equipment in the event of an emergency. The unstated second piece of that directive was, get them out or dig them out, whichever comes first. By 1959, progress on the four points was well underway. Plans for the preservation of the federal records were nearly complete, and new locations in the federal arc were sprouting up all the time. The newly rechristened Office of Civil Defense Management was even constructing its own underground operations center in Texas. Eisenhower himself sat out the national drill in 1959, preferring a golf holiday in Augusta. But he was back in 1960, 
with those mischievous morning telephone calls that sent the National Security Council scrambling for the helicopters, it was Ike's farewell to Operation Alert. John Kennedy came into office with almost no interest in those Operation Alert exercises. Operation Alert went ahead in the first months of his administration, but only because the money to plan and stage it had already been spent. But it would be the last. Kennedy made a public show of his commitment to civil defense, though. He urged Americans to build their own fallout shelters and started a national survey of fallout shelter space. This survey is where those once ubiquitous fallout shelter signs on public buildings came from. 1.4 million of them produced for the Army Corps of Engineers. As for the continuity of the federal government, preparations followed a different pace. On February 6, 1961, two weeks after Kennedy took office, he was handed a proposal from the Office of Civil Defense concerning preparations for continuity of government. There were specific steps that the office felt could be taken to make up for lost time under the Eisenhower administration. The new State Department building extension should have a massive helipad on the roof, for instance, to support larger transport helicopters for evacuations. More definitive plans for evacuations to the Federal Ark needed to be developed, and a careful review needed to be made of the staff that would actually be required to go in the case of an emergency. Three months later, another document found its way to the new administration. This one was titled, Action Steps Which the Department Can Take at Once to Improve Its Plans and Progress for Emergency Relocation. Not so much a title as a summary and a sales pitch, I guess. This acknowledged that Eisenhower had overseen the construction of the hardened facilities at Raven Rock and Mount Weather, but also made clear that in general, continuity of government plans hadn't kept up with the technological realities of the Soviet nuclear threat. Chiefly, the quickly advancing Soviet ICBMs and SLBMs, the usefulness of the Federal Ark all depended on the ability of the government to evacuate. But the Soviet intercontinental ballistic missiles could reach the U.S. in about 30 minutes. With the newest launch detection systems, the BMUs, the ballistic missile early warning system, the warning time was 15 to 25 minutes. Imagine the practicality of waking up the president in the White House residence getting a helicopter to the South Lawn, getting the president to the helicopter, and out of the blast radius, all the time shouting at him to make a decision on a retaliatory launch in 15 minutes. Another three minutes was added to the warning time, but not until 1964. And then was the issue of the growing Soviet submarine-launched ballistic missile. A Soviet submarine could sneak up on the U.S. coast, Perhaps undetected, but perhaps not. It wouldn't matter. Then launch a missile on a low, depressed trajectory. This would effectively reduce the warning time to zero. 
Then, of course, was the problem of the size of the Soviet weapons. The Soviets showed every sign of building weapons of increasing size and had said as much. On October 30, 1961, they dropped the largest thermonuclear weapon ever developed, and it could have been bigger. The scale of the weapons meant that any underground facility, Raven Rock, Mount Weather, or some secret salt mine somewhere, could simply be excavated if the Soviets wanted to spend enough missiles and enough time. The Kennedy administration understood that the public needed to have at least the illusion of protection. The National Fallout Shelter Survey offered a comprehensive catalog of shelter options, which were then passed down to the state and local civil defense organizations for implementation. The degree to which the public bought into that illusion is the subject of the next episode. For now, we'll stay with the continuity of government, and how year after year, surviving a Soviet attack seemed less and less reliant on midnight helicopter escapes and underground bases, and more on making sure a nuclear war never happened. Acknowledging the fruitlessness of hardened shelters, recommendations were made to the Kennedy administration that plans for underground regional headquarters for civil defense be scrapped. Some fallout protection and minimum degree of blast protection would have to be enough. The official recommendation stated, quote, It no longer appears economical to harden a target to make it proof against direct attack, owing to the ever-growing size of Soviet bombs. The last gasp of hardened shelter building in the service of continuity of government came in a 1963 proposal. It was audacious, and it was formulated to cope with the shape of modern nuclear war. Its ultimate rejection was a sign of the shape of things to come. It was called the Deep Underground Command Center, the Duck. And it was an extreme proposition. The capsule, as it was called, would be 3,000 to 4,000 feet under the Pentagon. It would be accessible by a high-speed elevator from the Pentagon itself and by high-speed rail lines descending from the State Department and the White House. It could house 50 people or be expanded to 300 for a greatly expanded price. Initially, it met with some approval, especially given the zero-warning scenario brought about by the submarines. But doubts crept in. Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara presented the kind of argument he was known for. He reasoned, If an enemy attacks Washington, he is irrevocably committed to full-scale destruction. And as long as there is a doctrine to ensure U.S. retaliation is provided, there's no real point in providing a survivable control mechanism at the national level. Those are his words. Extraordinary. But potentially true. The Joint Chiefs resisted its small size, requiring space for many hundreds more, but also resisted its price, all in about a billion $2,020. But the Pentagon had other technical issues that were as valid for the duck as any other underground facility. There was a brief debate about whether antenna technology had advanced to the point that it could be hardened against a strike on Washington. 
and without communications, what good would the generals be, buttoned up in the capsule, 4,000 feet underground, with no escape? No, a comment in one memo put it, I would rather take my chances in a helicopter. The federal government continued to rehearse continuity of government exercises, almost never with the president himself, but usually with a stand-in, and select key figures, though the facilities were never significantly improved upon. The last time the master plan, in its old Cold War form, was put into action was on September 11, 2001. And the legacy of disarray on that day hardly looks different from that morning in 1960. It's just that in 2001, it wasn't a game. On the morning of September 11th, the continuity of government plan was activated and fell apart immediately. These are only a few examples. A communications breakdown left Vladimir Putin unable to call George W. Bush to calmly ask why the U.S. was going to DEFCON 3. The White House didn't know how to patch him through to Air Force One. Air Force One, that was circling out over the Gulf of Mexico and back to Florida, then back out to sea, low on fuel with nowhere to land. Back in 1962, it was Secretary of State Dean Rusk during the Kennedy administration and part of the XCOM during the Cuban Missile Crisis who said that he never really believed that officials would follow the protocols and evacuate to Mount Weather or anywhere else. Turns out, he was right. Almost all of the first 10 in the line of succession on September 11th refused to go. The only person who followed the plan was the Speaker of the House, the third in line. He was taken to Mount Weather, but he was unable to communicate with anyone on the outside. The Vice President, number one, and Secretary of Defense, number six, told the Secret Service and their aides to back off and stayed in Washington. Dick Cheney in the East Wing PIOC, the Presidential Emergency Operations Center, where Eisenhower had sheltered in the first Operation Alert, and Donald Rumsfeld inside the still-smoldering Pentagon. The Attorney General, number seven, was in a plane and tried to come back to Washington, but the FAA turned him away. The Education Secretary, number 16, was literally left on the tarmac in Sarasota, Florida, as Air Force One took off without him. He had to rent a car and drive back to Washington on his own. In commenting on the Deep Underground Command Center, McNamara's reasoned argument, perhaps as devil's advocate and perhaps not, was that hardened facilities were no longer needed because if an attack happened on Washington, the leadership was no longer needed. The gears of mutual assured destruction, a term that had sprung into existence from the Hudson Institute only the year before, would by their very nature take over the role of a president or successor ensconced in a bunker somewhere. But there is another way of looking at Mack's argument. The situation 
the technological situation had gotten to a point that made survivability in the way that had been planned and practiced through the Eisenhower administration a near impossibility. Not necessarily survivability of the individual, but survivability of the government itself. A 1962 report to Kennedy and the National Security Council leveled a major blow to the whole concept of continuity of government as formulated. Its authors wrote, There is a defect in the existing line of succession statute. There is no provision for the selection of a president in the event none of the eligible successors survive. This was the harsh reality of nuclear war, even by the early 1960s, and so in place of that potential power vacuum, created by the absolute possibility of a decapitating strike, deterrence through massive retaliation, mad, if you will, existed to serve two simultaneously complementary and yet contradictory purposes. It was formulated to prevent nuclear war entirely and forever, and to fight it totally and apocalyptically. In a real nuclear exchange, deep in the Cold War, would all of the precautions and plans to save the president and the cabinet and all of the government, would any of that have worked? And if so, to what end? It's a question that wasn't just considered among politicians and planners for the sake of meeting the next year's crisis. It was considered, and not infrequently rejected, for the sheer absurdity of the proposition. Let me close with words from the memoir of John Kennedy's Secretary of State, Dean Rusk. Having lived through the missile crisis, I'm convinced that government leaders, if called upon to evacuate, are simply not going to say goodbye to their colleagues, and possibly their own families, and then board a helicopter and whirl away to some cave. Even if we did, and if the President and Secretary of State survived a nuclear attack, the first band of shivering survivors who got hold of them would likely hang them from the nearest tree. We can't suppose that a government that had allowed such a thing to happen would be allowed to function after the strike occurred. This whole program of evacuating top officials in a nuclear crisis is nonsense. Thank you for listening to The Vault. This episode was researched, written, and produced by DJ Kenny. And that's me. Following The Vault on Facebook may or may not make a difference, but at least you can see when new episodes come out and participate in conversations when I post Cold War-related articles of note. Show notes, images, and videos related to the episodes can be found at coldwarvault.com. And you can support the show at Patreon and get access to lots of additional resources for every episode. If it's up between spending your money on a family fallout shelter or helicopter lessons, I suggest helicopter lessons. Until next time. <laughs>